Hello and welcome to what I like to call my studio, but which is really just the closet in my home office that my wife and I share. But it's the place where we talk about faith and God and ask questions that you might be asking but don't have anywhere to talk about. I don't expect you to agree with everything that I say, but I'd love for you to think about it. I'm certainly not the final authority on these things, and I'm certainly not the only view, but I do have a view, and so if you want to listen and see what you think, I would love to have you. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Before I get going, let me unashamedly tell you about my Patreon page. It's a place where you can financially support what we're doing here. A few people have signed up, and I really appreciate it. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins and just follow the prompts. It's quite simple. No pressure, though. I'm really glad you're here. We've been talking about the Bible in the last few podcasts, and we're going to continue on that theme for this week anyway. As I record this, we are in the middle of this pandemic we call the coronavirus. Here in South Africa, we're on day 14 of a 21-day lockdown. We are all waiting in anticipation for the announcement as to whether this thing's going to get extended beyond the 21 days, although we're really hoping and praying that it won't. Normality as we knew it is a thing of the past. We are moving towards some kind of a new normal, whatever that is. So this morning, I went for a run. Well, actually, I'm not allowed to run on the road, so I just ran around my yard for half an hour. Not quite the same thing, but it does achieve its purpose. Anyway, while I was running through my garden, I was thinking about certainty and uncertainty. To say we are living in uncertain times is like this massive understatement. But what I was thinking about was how much, as humans, we crave certainty. And I think that's true for all of us. We want to know something is true or right or good. We want to know what to expect. We want to know what is out ahead of us. Reporters keep asking the doctors, how many deaths will there be? When will our lives go back to normal? Can you give us a date? We crave the certainty. The psychic industry in the world has grown exponentially in recent years. And it doesn't seem that there are a lot of figures on this, but it looks like this thing is worth billions. What are people looking for? Certainty. Am I going to be okay? Will I find the love of my life? It's all a matter of needing and craving certainty. And if if I follow this road of logic, then I have to honestly say that the reason that many people are attracted to religion is because of certainty. 
We're looking for answers or something we can hang on to. Where did we come from? Who's in charge? What will happen after I die? And then you have some people that have rejected religion altogether and replaced it with science because that seems to have more certainty than religion does. But like religion, science is also looking for and craving certainty. The very word science comes from the Latin word that means to know. And if there is anything that this pandemic has revealed, it's that even science is not that certain. In last week's episode, I I said something, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I said something that was almost a throwaway statement. After I said it, it kind of stuck with me, and I, I, I think that was the beginning of all this thinking about certainty. I said, Scripture is not a weapon that we use to get what we want. It's not the way we control the situation. It was that word control that got me. Control and certainty are very similar ideas. I crave certainty because I want to control the circumstances around me. And the more uncertain things get, the more I want to control. We want to control and we want certainty. So what does that have to do with the Bible? I think we have filtered how we read the Bible and how we use the Bible through our need for certainty. So about 200 or so years ago, we Christians created this idea that the Bible is inerrant, no mistakes. It is true in everything it talks about, including science and including history, that every word is divinely inspired by God. But when we start to question that theory, certainty seems to fly out the window, and that makes us a little bit nervous. In fact, we don't even want to ask the questions because it makes the ground feel shaky beneath our feet. So let's take the way we read Genesis 1 and 2, for example. For many of us, myself included, we used to have real certainty about how the world was created and where it came from. It was all there in the Bible, and we believed it six days, just like it said. There was certainty in that. But I remember the first time I heard somebody that I really respected say that Genesis 1 and 2 might just be allegory and not history. Man, I was shattered. Why? Because it messes with my certainty. I said all that to say this. When we challenge our ideas about where the Bible came from, it messes with our certainty. It gets uncomfortable. I get that. I'm right there with you. The ground begins to feel shaky. But if you read the Bible honestly and expect it to give real certainty, you will most likely be disappointed. I know I was. 
But when I began to learn that the Bible is not meant to be the source of all certainty, I could relax. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to have all the answers for life and faith. It doesn't have to provide my life with certainty and give me the tools to control the uncertain world around me. Maybe I can say it this way. Our faith in God shouldn't be dependent on certainty. If it is, then it's not really faith at all, is it? Okay, with that as an intro, let's get into what I've been trying to get to for the past couple of episodes. Where did the Old Testament come from? Now, let me preface this by saying I'm not an expert in these matters. In fact, I am barely a beginner. But I will try and share what I know and how that impacts my life and my faith. When it comes to the canon of the Old Testament, What is important to understand is that there is not actually a consensus between different Christian groups. There's this group of books called the Deuterocanon books, or you may have heard them called the Apocrypha at one time. But the short story is that these books showed up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, that was, that was around during the time of Jesus. Often when the New Testament writers quoted the Old Testament, they did so from the Septuagint. The Protestant canon, though, does not recognize any of these books. But the Catholic Church recognizes six of these books as an inspired part of the canon, along with some additions to the book of Daniel and Esther. The Orthodox Church in the East includes all the books the Catholics include, as well as three others and an extra chapter in the book of Psalms. My point is that even our Old Testament canon is not as certain as some of us would like it to be. But let's take a look at the first five books and where they come from, because those five books we all agree on. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're in everybody's canon. Sometimes you hear this referred to as the Torah, or the Law of Moses, or sometimes the Pentateuch. All of my young life, and probably well into my adult life, I was taught and I believed that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. That theory was held by the Jews at the time of Jesus. And so you see Jesus refer to the writings of Moses in the book of John, referring to the Torah or the Pentateuch. The theory was that God dictated to Moses what he should write. That's why he could write about creation. But as early as about 200 A.D., Jewish and Christian scholars started questioning that theory. It appeared that these books were written well after the time of Moses. The literary style 
and the language reflects a period possibly as late as during the exile period. It's important to understand that the time of Moses, the culture was almost exclusively oral. Stories and cultural values were not written, they were spoken. They were passed down from generation to generation orally. Part of the defense of Moses as the author is that the writing that existed during this time was very much confined to the elites. But Moses grew up in the home of Pharaoh, and so writing probably wasn't that foreign to him. However, the people of Israel were slaves. So for Moses to write things down would have been absolutely no use. Writing was not how stories and values were passed down to the next generation. Writing on a broad level really only started sometime around the 8th century BC, and Moses lived well before that. In the 1800s, a German theologian began a theory that we now call the documentary hypothesis. It has been revised numerous times since then, but it basically says that there are four different authors of the Pentateuch. And they are not neatly arranged by books, like one wrote Genesis and the next one wrote Exodus or anything like that. But these four different versions of the beginning of the history of the Jewish people were edited together by somebody to make one story that we know as the Pentateuch. Nobody knows who exactly that was or if it even was a group of people. But he or she or they took these four different documents and arranged them chronologically to make up the Pentateuch. Now, these four authors actually have names that have been given to them, even though we don't know who they are. Um, And there's an abbreviation for them. It's J, E, D, and P. J stands for the Yahwist, apparently because the word Yahweh in German starts with a J, and this is a German that did it. So J is about the Yahwist, E stands for the Eloist, D is the Deuteronomist, and P is the priestly source. Four different sources, four different writings. Many theologians believe these sources stretch well past the Pentateuch, into the book of Judges and Chronicles and Kings and beyond. I I know I'm getting dangerously close to super nerdy here, but let me give you two quick examples. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not one story of creation. They are two different stories, and there are some pretty blatant contradictions. For example, in Genesis 1, God creates vegetation on the third day, and yet in Genesis 2, it seems he only creates vegetation after he created Adam, which Genesis 1 tells us was on the sixth day. In Genesis 1, it says he created animals before humans, but Genesis 2 says the opposite. In Genesis 1, male and female seem to be created at one time, but in Genesis 2, they aren't. Now, I know there's been a lot of theological gymnastics performed to make all of this neat and non-contradictory, 
but it feels to me like we're trying to create certainty because if there are two authors with contradictory stories, the ground beneath my feet gets a little bit shaky. It feels a little uncertain. The flood story is another fascinating example. But it's not two stories in two different chapters like the creation is. The editors weave two different stories into one story chronologically. It's really cool. You can Google it and find it, but you can read the one story with the passages attributed to the two different sources that they think these may have come from. Okay, I know, I know I'm really getting nerdy now, and I'll back off, because my point is that in one version... The flood is 40 days, and in another, it's 150 days. In one version, it's two of every animal, and the other version, it's seven of unclean animals and two of clean animals. The J source, which is the one that says seven clean animals, is the source that has Noah sacrificing at the end of the flood. The P source that says no, just two of every animal, doesn't have the sacrifice at the end of the story. I could go on and on about things because there's so many examples of this stuff throughout the Pentateuch and actually the entire Old Testament. And I've probably already gone on long enough and you're probably bored. If that interests you, there's plenty of information online, both in favor of the documentary theory and those against it. You can do the research yourself, come up with your own opinion. But here's what I love about the documentary theory. It doesn't try to fix what seems to be contradictions. It seems as if the editors left the sources just like they were. And if the two stories were a little bit different, that was okay. I love that God seems to be okay with messy. I know I've said that before, and you will probably hear me say it over and over and over again. God is okay with messy. But that's uncomfortable for us because there seems to be no certainty in that. Remember the old song we used to sing in Sunday school, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God the B-I-B-L-E. The idea that there might be multiple authors that disagree with how a particular event happened in history, the fact that some of the stories might be an allegory and not science, if any of that's true, then the book, the B-I-B-L-E that I'm standing on, starts to get a little shaky because I crave certainty. Maybe this important, incredible book that we call the Bible is full of uncertainty on purpose. Maybe the mistakes, the wrong science, the contradictions are there on purpose so that we would not make an idol of this book. So that we would not think this is the ground we stand on in uncertain times. Here's what I'm discovering about certainty. It's not a thing that I can find in anything material 
or even in anything I can actually define. Certainly in my lifetime, this has never been more obvious than it is right now. The things that were certain when the big ball on Times Square dropped at midnight just a hundred days ago are no longer certain. They are, in fact, upside down. I love how the Apostle Paul said it in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And to paraphrase, he said, when it's all said and done, there are three things that remain. Or I might say, there are three things that are actually certain in this world. Faith, hope, and love. Those are three words you can't actually define. They are three words that you can't prove by science. I can't prove them by some writing from years gone by. I can't prove them with art or poetry and dance. I can only observe them and know that they exist. I can only observe them and know that they are true. In these uncertain times, what are the stories that are inspiring you? Probably stories of faith, hope, and love. Stories of people who put their lives on the line every day to defeat this virus. Stories of people that are feeding the hungry. Stories of people that are helping those that have no jobs because of this pandemic. Stories of people who stand on balconies and sing in an attempt to say, there is hope. There is faith. Stories of families that are coming together and loving each other. My friend, that is where we find certainty. And I would say faith, hope, and love is a great definition of God. Or if you don't want to be so religious, a great definition of the divine. See, in these uncertain times, my certainty is not found in a book or in a few lines of a book. My certainty is found in God. A God that I see when my granddaughter introduces me to her new hamster over Zoom. A God that I see when I see pictures of healthcare workers who have worn masks so long that they have indentations on their face. A God that I see when I look into the eyes of our little babies that continue to love in spite of the cruel situation they find themselves in. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. That is where certainty is found. So thank you for taking time to listen as I unpacked my head and my heart in this podcast. If this is helpful, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on most social media platforms or go to my website at skipcollins.com and there's a button there that will help you connect to me. Um, you know what I love? Almost every time I hear from somebody, they some say something like, I don't always agree with you, but you really make me think. 
That is my goal for sure. So connect. I would love to hear from you. And also, don't forget to check out my Patreon page at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Skip Collins. And so until next time, Shalom.